Welcome to Show and Tell, episode number 10. Today we're talking about different ways in which parents can prepare kids for a remote work world. So assuming that remote work is here to stay for a foreseeable future, we wanted to talk about different ways in which we can start thinking about preparing kids. And we came up with six things that we believe that are rewarded in a remote work environment and how parents can start to think about this. But before we start, David, what did you bring for show and tell today? A map. Story a time. Story time. Okay, so when we used to travel, my dad would always go to AAA and he would get these big maps. And so whenever we would travel, we would go, we would open up the map and then we would look at all the highways we were going to take and the thing is we did this as a family for 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 years way after google maps was invented and stuff and even now when we travel my dad still carries the maps looks everything up and i think that it's actually a really good analogy for remote work in google maps has obviously replaced this and you can zoom in indefinitely and once you have Google Maps, you look at something like this that's a little clumsy and cluttered, and now I can't really figure out how to fold it and <laughs> all of that. And you just say, wow, there's such a better system. But at the same time, there's these big generational differences between how people use maps and how they think about maps. And there's people in the AAA generation, and then there was this thing called MapQuest, which you would go on and then you'd get your directions, and that was like a big deal. Now, Remember that we had those Garmin GPSs and now we just use Google Maps and it's changed a lot. And I think that it's actually a pretty good analogy for what's happening to the world of work in that different generations see work so differently. Like a young person would be like, of course, remote, like, how would it be any other way? No, I'm not going to go into an office every day when I get older, whereas an older person is like, you can work from home. Like, I can't believe that. And I think that this foreshadows a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. That is an excellent show and tell. It's one of my favorites so far because it goes so well with what we're talking about today. Awesome. So before I show you my show and tell, um, a little bit of context. So I've been thinking, and if we continue to live in a remote world, younger generations are probably gonna to have to pause and think intentionally about the way that they wanna pursue their studies and their careers. So I have a feeling that 12 years of schooling won't be as common as it has been for the past 200 years, or pursuing a four-year degree after high school and then spending ridiculous amounts of money to see if you got a job won't necessarily be the most common path in a remote work world. So I really envision a future where kids are going to have actually a better idea about the things that they want to do when they grow up and will actually start working toward that from an earlier age. Maybe picking a specialization or maybe experiment between different ones. But in general, I envision kids starting this process at an earlier age. So for my show and tell, I created a vision board. Whoa. I actually did this this morning. <laughs> so the reason why I created a vision board and brought it for show and tell is because vision boards are like fun ways to create and record your future dreams or your goals or these big ideas that you have, right? 
And kids can start thinking about how they envision themselves in the future. They can think of things that they would like to accomplish and you know what they may want to do in their life. And it is a really powerful motivator that's constantly reminding you like, you know, these are the kind of things that you could become. If you work really hard toward this, this could be you. Um, and I think that it's just a great introduction to our first idea that we're gonna cover today, which is remote work world rewards people that have a strong online presence and that know how to brand and market themselves. And I'm gonna tell you how this ties in with the vision board. So being able to show the world who you are, what you can do, what you have to offer, and do it in a virtual space. So a place where you can show your skills, where you can show your projects, your personality, your aspirations, and start building a community around that and start connecting with people that have those similar interests. So the first things that come to mind are like creating a website. And I want you to talk a little bit about this in a moment, um, since you were actually who, the person who inspired me to start this process. And I've really seen so many benefits after doing this. Nowadays, personal websites are often more powerful than resumes, right? Like when people are going to hire you, they don't really need to meet you in person anymore. They can just meet you through your writing, through your public interest, through what you've built or created in the online space. Um, if you have like a strong digital media presence um, and if you start blogging about topics that interest you or your topics of expertise, like these are all things that help you and you can do it fairly quickly, build an online presence. And I really believe that in a remote work, this is going to be extremely important. And I've actually seen different platforms emerging that are spotting young talent this way. And I think that it's gonna become even more common in the future. So before I ask you your thoughts on this, one way that I thought that parents could help their kids start thinking about their online presence and what they're going to eventually put out in the internet is to get them thinking about their narrative and start collecting ideas and putting them into words or pictures or a vision board that they get excited about, right? So eventually when they're old enough to have an online presence, they can transition to that quicker because they've been thinking about it. So depending on their age and the privacy issues, et cetera, like maybe at the beginning, as the kid is experimenting, putting things online, it could be monitored by a parent, but it, it's already giving them like a jump start to the kind of vision that they want for their future. And I wanna just share a quick story from our summer camp that highlights this idea. So we actually had this eight-year-old that was extremely excited to start her new healthy restaurant. And she came up with the idea of creating a logo with an app that she found. And then she started a Pinterest board and she started putting things that represented her. She's eight years old, that represented her and colors and her essence. And I just love the way that she talked about it. She's like, this, you know, shows how I am and the things that I'm interested in. And when she created this and showed it to the other kids in summer camp, immediately another girl came up and she was like, wait, that really resonates with me. You also like this, like, I can see myself identified with this and this. I also want to create a restaurant. Why don't we do one together? They became really friends in the summer camp because one of the girls shared her interests and her vision and the other one related and they formed a relationship. They became friends. And then they said that in the future, they're going to be starting their own restaurant together. Aww. So this is like a kid example of something that actually happens in real life when you put your things out there, right? Like that's, exactly what I've experienced by creating my website, by putting my thoughts out there. Like I started to attract people that think the same way as I do, that you know connect with the things that I'm saying and different opportunities have come across because of doing that. So I just thought it was a great example to kind of share how that really brings benefits and we're gonna see more of that in a remote world. Yeah. 
a lot there. I think that what I really do believe in is that people should have a personal website. It makes intuitive sense to me that you would have a online home in a place that you uniquely call yours online. And people, a parent might say, oh, well, I don't want my kid to have to deal with that. There might be some privacy issues, but many of these kids already have TikToks and already have Instagrams and stuff like that. And also I think that definitely compared to social media, there's a lot less of unexpected things that a kid would stumble across that would make a parent scratch their head if they're designing their website. And mm. I think that if you help your kid make a Squarespace site or help them build something on Wix, they'll be able to play around in that sandbox and begin to design a space that is uniquely theirs that they can then move through and begin to just share with people, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm into. And I know a lot of friends who've done this going back 10 years with something like Tumblr, people, a lot of designers now with this platform called Arena. And they're really just like curating mood boards. But I suspect at a more societal level, there's actually a lot of innovation to be done in websites and the way that they can portray who we are with design and with linguistic tropes and with fonts and colors and getting kids to realize that they can build something young. We talk so much about software engineering, but it doesn't even need to be so extreme. Designing a website is quite easy. But transitioning into our second point of strong written communication skills, every remote work executive that I talk to hires for strong written communication skills. Because if the office rewards talking, the computer rewards typing. And even in our business, all big decisions come after a memo that we write. We write out every major decision that we're gonna do before we do it, and only then is that decision made. I was talking to a friend over the weekend. He runs the, he's one of five people in the world's largest hedge fund for cryptocurrencies. And I was talking to them about their decision-making process and not a decision gets made without a memo being written up, not one. And it's much more efficient to be writing ideas in memo form. Ideas are sort of saved through time, but then also you can work much more asynchronously, meaning that you don't need two people to be working at the same time. And in a remote work company, actually one of the big benefits is that you have people working on different time zones. So for example, if you run an app, one thing that works really well is you can have all of your developers who are creatives, they might live in the Western hemisphere, and then you might have all of your quality assurance people living in the Eastern hemisphere. So then rather than having nine to five where the whole company starts working and the whole company gets off, you actually have people working 24 seven. So how cool is this? So during the day, you have people making stuff and at night you have people testing for quality. During the day, making night testing for quality. So then you get this 24 hour cycle. But what's really important to understand there is people aren't then working at the same time. And so writing allows communication to happen across time zones in a way that's much easier. Well, 
how do we get kids to get better at written communication? Because right now kids are engaging in writing, but they're, they're engaging in like short form writing, or I don't really know what we would call this, but they're constantly texting. texting. They're, yeah, sending messages on Twitter Commenting. or on Instagram or this, right, or Snapchat with a few words and this and that. So they are using the written word, but in a more like, in a shorter, more colloquial way. Um, but they, they don't like the long form writing. They associate it with school, they associate it with lots of work, and they don't really see the value but as we've been talking about, it's something that's going to become even more important if we continue to live in this remote work world. So I'm just trying to think, well, how can parents try to get them excited for this? And a few things come to mind, like if they start to see the value of what they're writing and if parents don't focus so much in the grammar and in the rules and just let them like spit it out, put everything out. Maybe it's a newsletter that they start to write every week. Maybe it's a post that they do and they post in their website or finding different value to the long form writing so that they start to get into it. And even if at first it, it's not, again, perfect, it doesn't matter. It's almost like reading, right? You begin by reading things that are interesting to you and then eventually you start to read like bigger books or whatever. Well, it would be the same with writing. Like first just start putting your ideas out there and get in the habit of sharing your thoughts in longer form. And then eventually you can start tweaking it and making it better with time. But I, won't, I, I think it's interesting for kids to see the value in the writing first. Yeah, I was reading The Republic by Plato last night, trying to just understand what Plato's philosophy of education was. And he said something to the effect of, if you force someone to learn, they won't remember it. And Plato understood 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece that there needed to be an actual desire to learn before something would stick. And I think that when it comes to writing, we sort of get things backwards in terms of the actual linear process of how we teach people. So for example, if you talk to the world expert on professional football, they will tell you who has the most touchdowns ever. They'll tell you what running back got the most yards from scrimmage in a year. And you could look at a person as a distant observer and you could say, oh, they're experts because they learn those things. But it actually confuses cause and effect. Cause and effect. They learn those things because they learn to love the game at a young age. And I think that getting kids to actually understand why writing is worth doing and to get them to want to go learn grammar, that's the, grammar's the statistics that you learn at the end. What we need to do is get kids to actually see the value of writing. And the challenge is that writing is quite a solitary experience. It's quite a still one. And we're not trying to have 14 year olds write like Shakespeare. I think that much more the goal is to get them to realize that from a consumer perspective, Writing allows you to actually think and to work with ideas and to have kids realize how cool that is. Like mm -hmm. I'm working on a long form essay about the decline of the liberal arts in the West. And I have some vague notions of what that is, but unless I write them, they won't be clear. And so I see writing as like, okay, now I can structure this argument to understand what it is I'm thinking. But then mm -hmm. second of all, Machiavelli in The Prince has a great quote um, where he talks about 
might not be the prince, but it's definitely Machiavelli. He talks about how when he comes home at night, he gets in his pajamas and he has these conversations and basically begins to go in a form of time travel. Like reading is literally the closest thing that we have to time travel. And to make kids understand that too, I think is quite important. But to go back to the original point, we need to get them to like writing and reading just like they like football. And then we'll teach them about statistics and grammar later. Well, that just made me think, what if parents um, start to help kids realize how writing goes into pretty much everything that's well done. So let's say that a kid is obsessed with making videos and they wanna make the best YouTube video and put it out there, having a parent point out, well, if you write your content first, even if it's a draft, just by writing it, even if you don't read it later, you're organizing your ideas and they're gonna come out more eloquently in the video, so the video is gonna be better. Ah, oh, what a great reason to write it first, right? Or like we were saying, if you start sharing the things that you're interested in and put them in a blog, then maybe you're gonna make new friends. You're gonna find people that are not in your neighborhood or close to you that relate to your content and you're gonna have friends that like the same things as you. So maybe trying to find in everyday things that the kids do or that the kids like, try to see how you can find the relevance with writing and then kids can be like, okay, I can see the use for this. I actually want to do it. I want to try it out. One way to make writing a lot easier is to then add on knowledge management. And this is the third pillar of what we suggest. This goes back to the map thing that I was talking about earlier, but what you see with knowledge management is we have transitioned from this world of information scarcity to information abundance. And a lot of people call what we're moving into the knowledge age or the information age. And intuitively, it makes sense that knowing how to manage and organize your ideas, if we're actually moving into an information age, knowing how to organize information is going to be a huge competitive skill. And it's interesting to watch kids learn how to use this intuitively. Like, I think Pinterest does a very good job of showing you, for example, what knowledge management could look like. Here's an idea, a photo that I really like. Okay, let's put this into my wedding category. Or here's a design that I like. You're moving to Miami. Let's put this into my Miami office category for the show and tell background. But like, mm. what does that look like at a more advanced level? And I work very closely with Tiago Forte, who runs Building a Second Brain and in Rite of Passage, we help our students with the very basics of knowledge management. And the brain is designed for thinking. It's not designed for storing ideas and getting people to become good knowledge managers is going to be very important in terms of training them for this swell of information abundance that they're going to be living inside of. Absolutely. So many good things you mentioned there. So before the problem was that in order to learn about something, you had to figure out where you were going to go to find the resource and the information to what library, see what's available. So that was the problem. The problem now that we have everything available and out there is that there's so much information that people struggle to know, well, what's legit? Like, where do I even start? Like, how do I curate all this information? And what we've seen with kids is that they get paralyzed and then they don't do anything with that information, right? Just because there's so much out there, they don't even know where to start. So um, that's what we call, you know, the knowledge management that you're mentioning and that's taught in building a second brain and the organizational skills. And it's really interesting how 
I'm very organized in real life. That's one of the things that helped me be a really good teacher that I, I always had like a system in place. I was extremely organized and I would really push my students to be organized. But I realized when I transitioned to the digital world that my organizational skills in the real world don't necessarily transfer to the digital world. So I am extremely organized in real life. But if you go in my computer, I have all these tabs open. I have information everywhere and I'm struggling to like organize it in a way that I can retrieve that information faster and use it productively to create things. When I was a teacher, I saw how valuable it was when I pushed my kids to be organized. Like I saw that when their, their desks were disorganized, they couldn't find anything. It would take them forever when I would ask them to pull this or that. And they would end up not being as productive or not doing their work because they lost the paper and this. So we had this routine on Fridays called Friday cleanup where they would take everything out of their desk. There was a picture that I would project of how they could organize their desk so that it made sense and they could find their things easier. And we would do this every single Friday to the point where it became automatic. And it made such a difference in the kids' lives that I would hear it from parents. I would hear it from older students who had gone on to different grades and they would come back and be like, surprisingly, what you taught me, you taught me to be organized and this has been huge. So. That's really important in order to keep learning and self-learning. But now how do we transition that virtually for a remote future, right? And I think that this kind of courses, like you mentioned, building a second brain, are gonna be great resources or ways for kids to learn how to organize their digital lives. Like they're already consuming all these YouTube videos to learn about the things that they're interested in. Now what? You, what did you learn? Maybe get in the habit of writing a few notes and then what are you gonna do with that information? So I feel like that's what kids need help with nowadays. Like finding ways to put the information that they're consuming in organized buckets in their brain and then putting them to action. So that's what comes to mind when I think of knowledge management and organizational skills. I in thought the you were supposed to put all your erasers and pens and pencils together and that the, the desk wasn't <laughs> supposed to close because there were so many pencils in there. You wouldn't have lasted a day in my classroom, David. Wait, I didn't realize that. Okay, good to know. <laughs> I was so disorganized. Let's talk about computerized leadership, which is our fourth category. So I would say this is probably one of my more unpopular opinions, but I think that video games have a lot to teach kids about leadership in the future world. And every now and then I'll read about some 13, 14 year old who is of course anonymous on these games, who is managing like some surprising amount of money or dealing with some chat room that has thousands of people and they're just doing something that's surprisingly crazy for how young they are and no one knows what their age is so it's just you know 86 San Francisco Delta Q is the the username and no one knows how old they are but like I think a 10 year old the right <laughs> I think that the right amount of video games to play because of this is not zero that there's a lot about the future that is going to be reflective of how video games work now in terms of collaboration from a long ways away and i was talking to the ceo of one of my favorite design companies last week and i said because they used to be in person then they went to remote and i said what's been the biggest difference and he said just building trust the way that you build trust remotely is very different from the way that you build trust in person. Mm -hmm. And it's not quite clear to me how trust is built remotely. We have a sense of how to do it in person, but there's a lot of scientific studies waiting to be 
done there. But then also I think that there's a certain panache, a certain set of skills that you end up building digital trust much better with people and being able to build trust with a team from around the world and to meet someone if you're in New Zealand and talking to someone in Panama and you know that you're never really going to meet them, how do you still trust each other and lean on each other in the way that's required for good work? And video games might be part of the answer. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, when kids are playing video games, they're using a different set of skills. It's a form of leadership, right? Like sometimes they're guiding all these like groups and people are doing what they're what they're requesting and they figure out the strategy to get to the bottom line and this and that. Um, and but and these skills are not the same as the kinds of leadership that we see in real life in person, mm -hmm. right? So I agree with you that video games are a great way to kind of like get kids practicing this set of leader like computerized leadership skills that they're probably going to be using in remote work and what i'm thinking is that this is a big opportunity for video game you know companies to come up with better content let's put it that way right because obviously there there's a negative side to video games especially like all these violent ones and the addictive component that many parents are just like you know i don't want my kids playing this like they're killing each other in that video like why would i want that yeah, of course. but if right so it but it this is a big opportunity knowing that there is something that a big skill that they can develop, a leadership skill that they can develop through video games. So for companies to create other kinds of video games, and of course there are already, but the majority that we see that kids are interested in are these violent ones, or these ones of like, like violent competition. So it's, you know, how do you shift that to a more productive kind of leadership role? Um, and I think that's coming, right? I think that's on, the, on, on its way. Yeah, I actually think video games taught me a lot about long-term thinking. So there was this game called MVP Baseball. And what you could do is you could take a team and you could play for like 20 years with your team. And then what you would do is you would make all these trades and I knew certain parts of the game. Like I knew that Joe Maurer was the rookie of the year and you could actually, for his value, get sort of an unfair trade with him. So then I figured out all the parts of the game that were things like that. And I knew that Joe Maurer's development was sort of like oddly rigged in the game and then me and my friend Avi Stricker we would stay up all night we would build the best baseball team in history and then what we would do is we would play like 20 years worth of worth of video games in one night and I could see how like trading for rookies was really smart even though it was sort of a bad short-term strategy and stuff like that and a lot of the lessons that I learned about company building I feel like I got from video games and maybe they weren't lessons, but I feel like they were, we we're talking about learning to see what you're good at. One thing I learned from video games very early on is that I was obsessive, that I was very good at strategy and that I could figure out big systems very well. And I use all three of those skills every day. I think that that actually transitions well to the other um, idea of digital relationship building and how to socialize in a virtual world. And this is a very interesting one to me because to be honest, I didn't really believe in, in building relationships and friendships online and, and like the social interactions, but in a virtual space, like I just wasn't into that whole idea until I took your course last November, Rite of Passage. Um, and I was just instantly hooked with the way you can actually develop this relationship with We've other people. Twice. 
And well, that's the other thing. Like you are at this point, one of my best friends, my business partner, like someone that I talk to every single day of my life. And it's crazy because I feel like I know you and I feel like we're always together, but we're not. It is a complete digital relationship that we have, right? And we've met twice in person. How crazy is that? So I think that as we move into a remote work world, this is going to be even more relevant and kids would benefit from learning how to socialize in this digital environment. And a few things come to mind, like joining a virtual community, I feel like is one of those big opportunities out there right now, like, like for companies to build ways to safely interact with other kids online so people can find each other people that have the same interests work on projects maybe get feedback on things that they're working on those are the kind of things that we're going to see more often now yeah i mean i think that one of the things i've seen with rite of passage and i could tie it right back to video games is that people even make friends off of video games they know people who they've spoken with for many years and they'll team up together they'll meet up in the future I would say that somewhere in the middle between a video game and meeting people in real life is Twitter. I would say Twitter is probably closer to a video game, actually, than meeting someone at a conference. And most of my friends come through Twitter. That's how I meet people. That's how I make friends. That's how <laughs> I make opportunities in my life happen. It's one of those things that there's only two ways to hear this. It's like, this is so obvious. Why do you even need to say this? Or what are you talking about? But like, there's Absolutely. only people on, on, on either side of that chasm. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something really interesting about that from a sociological perspective. Yeah, and this is not to say that in-person social interactions are not gonna be relevant in a remote future. It's just that it's gonna be two different ways to socialize. You're gonna have your in-person friends, you're gonna have your virtual friends, you're gonna have a mix of both. You know, sometimes you're gonna meet it virtually then in person, but it's gonna be like two different buckets. Whereas now it's been mostly your friends who you meet in person, right? In the future, it's gonna be both of, it's gonna be like two different things that sometimes blend, but they're both gonna be extremely relevant. So it's a matter of not rejecting that, but actually seeing, okay, how do I get my kids started? Work, maybe joining a community, an online community, or maybe whatever it is that my kid is doing, we can find out a way for him to have a pen pal or to share his writing with somebody else, or, you know, but, but trying to in incorporate this in their lives. And this leads us to this final idea that we're gonna be talking about today, which is having self-discipline and being self-motivated. And this, maybe you wanna talk a little bit about it, David, of why this is so important, moving to a remote future. And then I will finish up by saying what parents can do to help their kids work on this. When I worked in an office, if I wasn't doing my work, it'd be really embarrassing because people would walk by, they could see I was slacking. My boss could come by and check in with me. I had a meeting with my boss, you know, at least once a day. And there was a whole culture of just being around other people. And when you were at the office, you worked. And then when you left, you wouldn't have to work. And I know a lot of people who just can't work from home. They need someone to tell them, this is what I need from you. This is what to do. These are the times you're going to be working at. And they have no ability to be self-disciplined and self-motivated. And even when they have a deliverable that needs to get done, they're not able to kind of motivate themselves and discipline themselves to like, I sit down at this computer and I work. I, I never get distracted. I, I, I really don't. I never get distracted. 
Except when I send you 100 messages. You do send me 800 messages. No, like for, <laughs> I, look, I like I do a lot of things wrong, but like getting distracted is not one of them. And it's been like years of trying to understand how to curate a digital environment that would make it so that I wouldn't get distracted. And that doesn't mean I have days that are like every day super productive, some days less, some days more, but I've gotten fairly good at, I sit down here and I just sort of know what to do and whether that's simple things like to-do lists and blocking out distractions. I put my phone on the couch behind me, like all sorts of things like that. But it's very hard for people when they're not around, for, for, for some people, when they're not around others to actually be able to say, this is what I need to do today. This is how I'm going to get it done. These are the times that I'm going to do it. And for something so simple, it is still so difficult and mm -hmm. it is in part difficult because it runs so counter to the grain of how we're taught in school and traditional exactly. work styles. That's exactly what I was going to say now that it's so interesting. Uh, how your idea. <clears throat> yes, you did. No, you actually <laughs> <clears throat> introduced my idea. So I find it really interesting that I often get parents reaching out and saying, Anna, you keep talking about self-directed learning and giving kids the space to work on the things that they're interested in. But if I leave my kid alone and I'm like, yeah, work on something you're interested in, they won't do it. Like I, I, I find myself having to tell my kid exactly what to do, when to do their work. And if I don't do it, they won't do it. And I'm like, well, of course, because that's what they've been conditioned to do in school. In school, they teach you to stay still until somebody tells you what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And they're constantly checking, okay, David, are you done? Keep working, this and that. So that's what they're used to, right? That's what, And then they transition into works where typically you have to be there from eight to five. And that's like a set, you know, set amount of hours that you have to be there. And sometimes you can do your work in two hours, but just because you have to be there for that amount of time, you're kind of like slacking and you don't have that self-motivation. But what I tell parents is, if you kind of change that mind shift and you start giving your kid more ownership over the things that they want to do, more freedom, and in a less structured environment, maybe at first they will be a little bit lost and maybe at first they will be like crying for help, but eventually they're gonna start to see that they can move things their way, that they can start, and that they have to be responsible for their things because nobody's gonna be telling you what to do. So it takes a little bit of time to transition, but eventually it happens. And I see it in, in people who work, again, from eight to five, they're not motivated to do their things. Like, you know, this happens often in Panama where, you know, the boss has to be really on top of everyone for people to work. But what if you change that and you did a task, um, you know, instead of having like an amount of hours, you just say, well, this, you know, this is your task for the day, or you have to accomplish this and this and this, and whatever time it takes you, that's fine. You can leave. You automatically see people motivated. Like, okay, I, there's a reason why I would want to do this efficiently, quickly, in a timely manner so that I can go and then do other things. So it's about letting go this idea that we need to tell people what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. Give them more ownership, more freedom, and that's going to help them become more self-disciplined and more self-motivated and achieve the goals that they should be achieving. So that is to wrap up our episode for today. Any last thoughts, David? I just want to go over the six again. So I think that the first one is a strong online presence and mm -hmm. knowing how to market yourself by knowing what you're actually good at. The second is strong written communication skills. And that's important because if a in-person office rewards talking, when you're working asynchronously across time zones, mostly on computers, 
you're going to be writing a lot more and then writing also helps to improve your thinking and we want to help kids realize how cool that is then mm -hmm. strong knowledge management and organizational skills and this is important because we're mm -hmm. living in an information economy and an information economy rewards people who are the best at managing and organizing information then what we would call computerized leadership is number four and digital relationship building is number five so this <clears throat> is first the ability to lead others through digital platforms will be important for people who work in remote work and then being able to make friends on the internet this is a really emerging part of the way that friends are being made so if the 2010s was about online dating maybe this decade will be about online friendship and then finally being self-disciplined and self-motivated being able to when you work remotely to figure out how you're going to spend your time organize your days and know how to focus on high priority tasks that was a beautiful way to wrap up today's episode i hope you guys enjoyed it and stay tuned for what's coming next